Welcome to another episode of the Warrior Way podcast. This week, I caught up with longtime Washington teacher and a man who will be retiring at the end of this school year, Steve Sievertson. Steve was our Spirit of Washington Award winner this year, and very deservingly so. Steve has dedicated his life to teaching and has been instrumental in developing relationships with our ELL population at Washington, as well as his coworkers who consider him family and he considers them to be family. Steve talks in the podcast about his love for working at activities and where that passion came from. You'll hopefully get to see him at many scores tables even after he leaves the classroom. Let's get to our conversation with Steve Sievertson. All right, welcome to this week's episode of the Warrior Way podcast. Uh, we have only a few weeks left in this school year, and we are capping it off with some really special guests. Uh, this week, I'm joined by a longtime WHS educator, a guy that's actually going to be leaving our walls this year, or so he says, um, Steve Sievertson. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. It's really an honor to be here. I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts, and you've had a pretty illustrious group of people that I've really enjoyed listening to. We have, yeah. It's been, uh, I, I tell people all the time that through this process of doing the podcast, I, I've i learned so much about Washington. Um, uh, last week's episode, we were able to record in old Washington with Jeff Herbert. And I just, uh, from Jeff, uh, I could just, I almost got jacked up just listening to all the stories because he was just so excited to tell you know, going to school there, um, you know, teaching and, and just his passion for Washington High School. And, um, you know, it's been it's been the same thing with with Murrin. It's been the same thing with Shred. It's been the same thing um, with a lot of these guests. And it'll be the same thing with you today. And so we just want to, um, you know, get some stories out of you, because from what I hear, you've got plenty of, of stories to tell some that maybe you shouldn't tell on here. <laughs> But we'll try to keep it PG for the listeners. Well, as you're talking, I'm thinking of some stories that Herbert could tell that I hope he didn't share. <laughs> no, he, he did a good job. Um, he, he said beforehand the same thing. He's, uh, he was going to you know, keep it uh, at a level that he knows listeners could listen to, and we'll tell all those stories behind, behind those closed doors. So for all the listeners who may not have um, been able to get to know you while they've been here at Washington or, or don't know um, you know, they've probably seen you around at ball games or seen you at Washington activities and whatnot, but I just want our listeners to get to know you a little bit, uh, how long you've been teaching here, but also going back to, I'll say it on the podcast, Augustana University, um, all the way back to Augie, and then, you know, just some of your first experiences out of college and what landed you here at Washington. So take us back. Okay, well, um, I went to, we'll go back before Augustana. I went to Augustana basically... I chose that college so I could stay, at time, uh, stay in town and because uh, I wanted to work at the Y. I was kind of a Y rat, and that's how I first met Jeff Herbert because um, he was, too. He was working at the youth department, and I ended up joining him when I went to college. And I never really have been one for planning ahead, looking into the future too much. I majored in uh, political science and because that was one of the things that I always enjoyed. I came from a real political family and uh, ended up getting a major in history because I liked a couple of the history profs, and when it came time for electives, I just, you know, chose the classes I liked. And um, when I got close to graduation, it's kind of like, geez, what should, I, what should I do? And it occurred to me that uh, George McGovern, one of my 
childhood heroes was uh, up for re-election in a Senate campaign in 1980. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I know some people that they work for McGovern, and I ended up getting on his campaign staff. And, and I guess I had hopes of, you know, after the election, hanging on and getting a job maybe in a field office and, and working for Senator McGovern. That was kind of a dream. And, and then somehow he lost the election. Uh, so then it was kind of like, you know, what do I do? And it's like, well, maybe it goes to that old cliche, those that can do, do, and those that can't teach, so maybe I'll go back to school. And uh, it took me a year and a half to get a teaching certificate, and then uh, then I, a student taught at Lincoln High School and subbed for a couple of years, and I kind of wanted a, I kind of wanted a job near Sioux Falls. I wanted to stay in Sioux Falls, and uh, I wanted to teach social studies, obviously, and um, and it seemed like all the social studies jobs were connected to coaching. And as much as I love sports, I wasn't interested in coaching. And uh, subbed for a couple of years, and then uh, Keystone Treatment Center down in Canton started an adolescent unit. And uh, they needed a certified teacher, and uh, so I applied for that, and and I got it. Uh, later, I found out I was the only one that applied for the job. But I didn't. We don't, we don't talk about yeah, that. I, I didn't know that at the time. They told me that as I was leaving. Um, but uh, so I was a halftime teacher, halftime recreation coordinator. They called me, uh, and. You know, that was a really new experience to me. For me, I didn't really know anything about that, um, you know, chemical dependency and those kind of things. And uh, But through that, I met some people that were working with uh, in the drug prevention field uh, in Sioux Falls here. And and I was approached by uh, Brad, Brad Green's father, uh, who is the director of this Project Awareness through the Carroll Institute and said they had a job opening and, and asked me if I was interested in that and, and that was time for to move on I thought from the chemical dependency treatment business um, so then I did that for about four years and we went around to different schools and spoke to classrooms and did some individual counseling and, and I ended up back at my alma mater Washington High School and it was a little bit strange to see some of the old teachers back then. I knew most of the teachers from my high school days. Uh, but uh, I did that for about four and a half, five years. And then uh, uh, I had the application in for the district that I kept active and got a call from Lincoln High School. I think it was like 1993, 94, um, from uh, Bill Hoff, who was in those days in charge of the substitutes, and I was one of his best, I shouldn't say best, I was one of his most reliable substitutes, and said they had a, an opening for social studies. And, and I ended up getting that job, and that's how I got into the district. But... Uh, I'm just rambling here. Is that okay? No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't know. I, yeah, the listeners won't know all this backstory either. So it's it's, it's interesting. Well, I, yeah, I was. Well, I was rather nervous walking into the interview, and uh, I didn't know that principal at Lincoln High School very well. Uh, but when I walked into the room, it was Bill Hoff and Terry England, who was the guy a student taught with, and so that made it a little. It made me feel a little more comfortable, but I ended up ended up getting that job and teaching at Lincoln for a year, and then toward the end of the year, I found out that uh, their numbers had gone down for the next year, and I was I was rift. There was a reduction in force, I think they called it, and uh, the rules at that time, and I don't know if they still are. If there's a if you get rift, then the district is obligated to. Uh, offer you a position that you're qualified for but if you turn that position down then you're you know they're not obligated to do anything else for you well a couple weeks after I found out about that I got a call from Jan Nikolai and uh, who I you know known from the the drug and alcohol prevention days here and, and I guess I actually had her in middle school or junior high at Edison junior high um, but she called and said, uh, we've got an opening. I got really excited. And, and she says, yeah, it's teaching social studies to the, to the LEP kids, which was what they called the ELL EL program uh, in those days. And, and my first thought was, geez, my, I remember saying, my, my English ain't that good. And she says, well, I'm sure it's better than theirs. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my thought was, you know, obviously I'm going to take the job because I, I want to go back to Washington and, uh, it, you know, there's no guarantees if I don't take it. So uh, I took the job thinking, well, I'll do this for a couple of years and then there'll be a, you know, there's sure to be a regular social studies job and I'll just slide into that. And that was kind of my my way of thinking when I came back and really glad I came back and uh, it's always kind of been the it's been my home um, so I was fortunate enough to, to be able to come back and here you are teaching ELL today still well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so just go back to like you said and do you remember what LEP stand like stood for it stood for limited English proficiency okay um, what what were your first, you know, any any memories your first year or two of teaching those LEP students? How how different of an experience was that for you as a as a new teacher? Uh, I was pretty nervous going in because I didn't have much experience with with the foreigners and um, you know I had crossed paths. You know they had a LEP program at Lincoln too, and I had crossed paths with a few of those, but. But nothing really, nothing really um, substantial. Um, so uh, my first you know, experience, you know, before school started, I walked in and and I knew Barb Ernster at the time was the LEP teacher uh, for English, and there was another girl that had left and gone on out of state, and and. Uh, I remember asking Barb, well, you know, what exactly do I teach? Where are my materials? And, you know, what kind of curriculum should I follow? And she just pointed across the room and said, well, 
there's the cart that she used. All her stuff must be on there. And I, you know, my first thought of that was, oh, expletive. Uh, you know, so I ended up, you know, going through her stuff and her history books and her geography books and her government books. And, and they were pretty thin. Um, so it was uh, kind of devise your own curriculum uh, and uh, you know basically it was I was kind of freewheeling things and and doing what it was I wanted to do and uh, I just you know looking back I'm glad it turned out that way right because in those days you know one of the things that I thought was great was you know, I got the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, there was nobody looking over my shoulder saying, you know, this is what you teach. There were no semester tests saying this is what you need to, you know, make sure that they know. And so we got to wing things and, you know, move at the kids' pace and teach what I thought they should know. And, and we had a, you know, Looking back at those days, it was it was really a fun time. How have and that that was a question um, that I kind of had. How have you know obviously curriculum and how we teach now is much different, but especially in the ELL um, department or in curriculum with ELL, how has that changed the most in your eyes over the years to where you're you know where you're teaching today? Well, the most obvious thing to begin with is numbers. Uh, I think we had, if I'm remembering right, like a total of 70 kids that were in the ELL program. And it was just, you know, there was two teachers, one for social studies, one for English. And eventually they added on and kind of farmed out. They found a, a science teacher that would teach and a math teacher that would do a one math class. And, uh, which, I mean, it was kind of, you know, they did a generic science, and, and the math was really, was really wild. They would find a math teacher, and all the ELL kids would have one period of math. And, uh, you know, we had some newcomers that were learning numbers and learning how to add because they'd been in refugee camps and never been in school. Uh, so, you know, we would kind of juggle things a little bit. And, and I remember one year, uh, you know, things were so diverse that, you know, I had a really small math or a social studies class and, and you know, the English teacher took, you know, my five kids, I think it was, and then I went up to help. It was Angie Neiman at the time that was teaching a math class. And uh, she was like working in algebra with some kids and, and she gave me the, the kids that were learning learning to add and subtract and which as a social studies guy I could still do that yeah, yeah. Um, so it was just kind of kind of wild but as far as just the history or the social studies part of it the, the class sizes were um, you know eight to ten and uh, you know and I remember you know I've always kind of loved South Dakota and I've loved Sioux Falls and so I kind of developed my own 
South Dakota History and Sioux Falls History Unit. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day we were talking about this, and we were talking about the, the, the Amadan Monument, and then we were talking about, you know, how the, the Falls part or the Sioux Falls fit into the history. And, and I just started thinking, you know, I've got a, I've got a van, and uh, what, if, what if we just hopped in the van and took a day to drive around to all these historical parks? And we went to Sherman Park, and we went up to the Amadon Monument and um, you know, checked out Yankton Trail, and it was just kind of a great thing to be able to, Bet to wander around. Awesome. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, so switching gears a little bit from ELL specifically, when you think of um, just Washington in general, and you can take this as far back or as recent as you want, you can talk about your you know, coworkers from years ago, you can talk about the ones you're going to be leaving this year. Um, just what makes this building such a special place in your mind? You know, that's such a tough question, Jeff. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to really put a f one a finger on it, um, and I I just think we've consistently hired people that care, uh, people that are in this for the right reasons, not just to to get a paycheck, but but people that uh, people that want to help. You know, I, I'll go back to my my drug counseling days when I was here with Project Awareness and uh, you know, we started a, a peer helpers group and uh, we did, I did some individual counseling with kids that were struggling with some issues uh, and I remember doing uh, groups with some of the counselors you know, we had a boys group and a girls group and uh, Bonnie Driscoll who was one of the um, counselors when I that was at the old school, and when I came here, she she and I connected, and, and you know I remember how warm and welcoming she was, and then and then Jim Ratzloff, I did the guys groups with, and he was just a such a laid back, cool, caring guy that was just kind of a a down-home country boy, but you could just feel the, the warmth and the empathy. Uh, sounds sounds a lot like a guy we had on the podcast named Jamin Ratzlaff. I'm familiar with him also. <laughs> That's awesome. What, um, you know, when it comes to, and, and we were going to get to this later, but let's just touch on it right now. You know, one of our Circle of Courage pieces is belonging, and you're touching on it right now. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to how we have, like you said, staff that care, people that are just quality individuals and good people for the building, how do you feel like our staff does just such a great job of making such a diverse group of students feel like they belong here together? Again, that's, a, that's another tough Sorry, question. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just, I'm on a roll this morning. Sorry. <laughs> um, how do, I think it's. Again, I'm trying to simplify things. I'm oversimplifying things, but but just being accepting. Um, you know, one of the things that I guess I learned 
when I started working with the ELL population was uh, that, boy, there's a lot of differences. You know, religion, skin color, language, um, you know, education. You know, some kids were in school for a normal amount of time and some kids never stepped into a school in their life. Um, but it didn't take long, I guess, to figure out that that different is just different. Uh, different isn't good or bad. It's just different. And, you know, once you realize that, you know, I think that that helps you understand things a lot better. That, uh, different know, is okay. Yeah. Different is good. Yeah, different, different isn't, you know, we shouldn't judge people because they're different. It's just they're different and it's okay. I mean, I think I think about the, you know, we had two ELL students on a few weeks ago, Mackenzie and uh, Luis. Luis. Oh, I mean, just hearing their story just makes me feel so boring. Like I, I, I just was so in awe of where they came from, and especially when Luis said two years ago he was barely speaking English. Yes. And to hear how well he was speaking on the podcast and. Much better than most people, a lot of people that have spoken English their whole life. And, you know, that's not a credit to necessarily, you know, we teachers alone or we educators alone, but it's a, it's a credit to how we've made him feel accepted enough to be, be confident to learn and to step out and take risk and um, to see where he's at as a 17 year old now. He's prepared to live a life here in the United States and to have a family and all that. So, Different is good. I mean, yeah. we, we want everybody to come in with your stories and and just add to what we have here at Washington as a collective group. Yeah, I, I enjoy their stories and like hearing about their travels and how they ended up here. And, and you know, it's hard to think being in that position and going so far away from home. And, you know, and it's, it's just kind of mind-boggling to me. And then sometimes they'll ask me, like, well, what about you? You know, and it's like, well, I grew up right near 20th and Waltz and Sioux Falls, and and now now I live near Second Street and Waltz. So I moved. You went a long eight, way. I moved about 18 blocks, but I did go away from college, and college was like on 27th Street and Waltz. So it's like, so I've I've seen a lot of places. Did you ever just take a group of students on your whole life? You know, life trek from starting at 10th and Walls or whatever you said, all the 20th. way down to 20th and Walls, all the way down to 2nd and Walls, all the way up to Augustana. And do you ever, that might be a way to, you know, a fitting way to, uh, you know, leave here is take your take your students on the journey you've taken. Yeah, no, I've never done that. And then they can compare it to their journey. And to give myself a little credit, I I did move all the way to Brandon for 20 years. So we ventured out east. Yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't handle paradise all that much. Right, right. Um, before we, before I forget, I want to just ask you um, about your involvement in all these WHS activities that you've been at. You know, you've, um, you know, you've done so much to help out. You've made um, Mr. Melchow's life a lot easier by just always, you know, being available and, and wanting to be at activities. Um, how fun has it been to be involved in those and what are just a couple of your most memorable experiences being involved in activities in whatever capacity you've been involved in? Well, I guess this goes back to my YMCA days again uh, when uh, 
you know, I was a Y-Rat. We spent a lot of time down there. And, and it all probably began with, you know, I was in seventh grade. And um, after school one day, this guy that worked at the Y, um, his name was Jim Anderson, and he was a seminary student. And uh, he said, hey, uh, we got this men's league basketball program, and we need people to keep score and run the clock. And would you do that? And it's like, oh, I'd love to. You know, it's like, he says, well, it's, you know, it's Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And I said, oh, that'd be great. And he said, yeah, we've got four games a night, um, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I said, well, I, you know, walk or ride my bike home. And, and he said, well, I'll give you a ride home. And I was like, well, let me ask my parents. And, <laughs> and I don't think my parents were all that excited. And But, you know, when it got to the part, well, well this guy's a seminary student. And he'll, so it's like, okay, I guess we can trust him. So I worked men's league basketball at the Y for, well, I guess all the way through high school. Um, and, and just, it, that was really a thrill. Uh, men's League Basketball at that time, there were some terrific players. Uh, you know, kids coming right out of college. I remember, you know, I always went to Augie games and, you know, Augie people would graduate and then they'd come play at the Y. And, and uh, to drop another Washington High School name, um, Trob Silo had a terrific team and they they got a lot of these college kids, and but there's a guy named Phil Minima, who uh, you know, has grandchildren or child or a son and and grandchildren that have come through here. That was he was you know when I started there he was probably in his mid to upper thirties, and but he would just school those college kids. He was just the sweetest, the sweetest shot, and he was just a. I always tried to get to the Traub Silo games, but but anyway, going back to getting back to here. Um, when I got here, um, I just told uh, it was Barry Baumhoff at the time that I was interested. He was the he was the athletic coordinator. I, said I was interested in you know doing whatever, and uh, so I've been involved with with those things from the time that I got here and it's and it's just really been a big part of my enjoyment of watching kids grow uh, you know highlights you asked you know being able to work the state tournaments uh, seeing a couple of basketball champions there uh, football games uh, spotting for Jason Luth has been a has been a real joy uh, Jason's been sitting out this year, so I really, I really missed him. But um, if I picked out one particular moment, and it's a, it's a screw up. I don't know whether I just remember the, the goof ups that I make more than I do the. But uh, that, that's the coaching you. We always look back on yeah, the, on the yeah. things we did wrong, right, and fail to recognize the good things. There so. was a. Period, well, we've had a lot of periods of history where, where Washington and Lincoln have been 
really the the rivals. And uh, God, I don't remember the year. It was 2002, 2003, somewhere in there, where we were one, they were two, and it was, you know, it was a, I think the district championship game, and it was tied. And uh, somebody called a 30-second timeout. And in those days, the equipment's different. The equipment has changed a lot. But in those days, uh, we had a automatic timeout button on the, the console, but it was only a 60-second timeout. So I have to watch it count down, and when it hit 30, you know, hit the buzzer, and the teams would come out. But uh, there was only a couple seconds left of the game, and it was tied. And I remember, I remember the kid, uh, Jordan Nordquist was his name, and he, he was at the line shooting a one and one, and you know, counted down to 30. And uh, I hit the buzzer. The teams came out. The referee hands Jordan the ball. And I had forgotten to shut off the timeout clock. So when it gets down to zero, it automatically rings. So he dribbles a couple times and gets ready to shoot. And the gym is silent. And the buzzer goes off. And Coach Trett turned and looked at me and said, what the hell was that? And I was like, the gym was silent. Everybody in the whole place heard him, including <laughs> the administrators who I don't think like Jim's language very much, but uh, it was like, you know, whoops, I uh, I goofed up a little bit, but uh, he but he made the free throw and we came back and we won the Washington won the game, so, so you I guess have, it turned out you may you may have helped him make Maybe. the free throw, yeah, if he'd have been a, that's a great yeah. story, and I'm sure Trett was just hot enough already until the buzzer went off yeah, in a usually, tight game against he's Lincoln. He's usually such a calm and collected guy, but right, yeah. Never, never seems no. anxious for anything. No. Or, no, Yeah, what a great guy. Um, one thing I want to get to before we, we end up um, getting to our draft here after a little while, um, I want you to talk about your social studies department. Um, and and I, I'm lucky enough to teach down there with Mr. Stahlberg, and so I get to be around you know, you guys just a little bit for a period of the day, but I know you have a special group down there. You know, obviously we've had Tread on, um, and, and we've heard uh, some of the things you guys do down there as a department, um, but also um, how you have made it feel like family. How hard will it be to leave that family you've created down there after this year? Well, it is going to be difficult, and I've had people question me about, you know, what about next year? How are you going to? How are you going to get by without those guys? And and it'll be it'll be difficult, um, but I don't know. It's it's just time for me to move on. Um, the I'm going to backtrack again here a little bit. Uh, you know, going back to the beginnings when you know. I've moved around the school a lot, and I was never really part of a department. You know, as a matter of fact, they had put the ELL, LEP, they connected us with the, the foreign language department in the beginning, which we didn't have anything in common with the foreign language, but they had to put us somewhere. Um, and, you know, I had a, my first room was right down here in E-Wing. It was a 
small room, so I got to know a lot of the 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 sped teachers and the shop teachers and things like that. Um, and then uh, as numbers grew, they had to find another home for me, and they put me up with. Uh, there's a little room between science rooms. I'm not sure what they planned for it, but it fit about 10 kids. And so they put me up there for a couple of years, and then they moved me to the, what's now the Chromebook room up on second floor. So then I hung around with all the math teachers, and it was really, you know, I enjoyed getting to know more people. And quite honestly, I knew more of the staff then probably than I did now just because I was always moving around, but I never really was part of a department until things changed again and they, Jamie Nold decided I should be down with the social studies department. Um, and I was honestly a little fearful about being part of a group. And, and I'm kind of an introvert and I'm, I don't mind being alone and now I'm sharing a TPC with all these other people that I didn't really know, but um, again, you know, things have a way of working out, and uh, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to spend the last, I don't know, eight or nine years with, with those folks. There's really been some great people through there. Um, and we talk about the uh, the circle of courage and you know you can look at all of those areas and those folks uh, those folks have it uh, and you mentioned you mentioned Stahlberg and uh, uh, you know, it just occurred to me you know they just had their AP history test and he was pretty wound up and and there's the old stereotype coaching thing that you know the you go to a social studies class with a coach and they, you know, put in the movie and then they diagram their football plays while the movie is on. And, and that's not him. No. Um, he's really dedicated to those classes and he's really dedicated to those kids. And, and I tried to work up the courage to tell him that someday I just hope you're as good a coach as you are a teacher, but I haven't had the guts to say that yet, but Maybe it, maybe he'll find out. Maybe if he ever listens to this. Yeah, we'll see if maybe. he actually does. Maybe. No, I've been, um, same thing. I've been so impressed with, you know, he was, I remember when he took over the AP um, class a year or two ago. Yeah, it's been a couple. He was nervous. Yeah. Um, but he's, I've just seen how dedicated he is by, you know, coming in at the end of his fifth period classes or just, um, you know, hearing him talk about it. He has students that come in while we're doing our sixth period and they'll just want to talk about things and he he puts his heart into it and it's it's definitely um, you know, showing through by the success that he's having with his students. But um last thing I want to get to, um you you went through a battle against cancer. Um and we knew it as a Washington community and um you know I don't want you to go into any specifics you don't want to, but I just want you to touch on how did Washington how did it make you feel loved and supported through your battle? Um, and now that um, you look back on it, what are you most thankful for through that time? If you can call it thankful, I don't know if that's no, the right word. I'm, I am thankful. Uh, you know, and I guess you know, 
I learned a lot of things, not so much about myself, but maybe about cancer. You know, I, first of all, am very grateful that, uh, you know, I learned that cancer is different. I mean, it's, you know, I had a lymphoma, Nate Melchow had a lymphoma, but his was different than mine. There's like, I learned there's like 60 different kinds. And, and I just was very fortunate that I responded to treatment very well. Um, I um, kind of shared a time frame of a similar but different journey with, with uh, Tim Joris. Uh, we both got diagnosed at the real close to the same time uh, with different kinds of cancers and and Tim and I Tim would come down and stop in my room and and we'd talk and you know this is what I'm going through this is what I'm going through and sometimes felt kind of guilty that you know every step of the way I had kind of positive results and every step of the way he had not so positive results and uh, I'm here today and and he's not um, and uh, you know so I just feel lucky that my treatment and my uh, was was positive and um, I just wish Tim's could have been the same because he was um, he was one of those circle of courage kind of guys that I remember when when I was up in the science department I was still working with the peer helper group and and uh, Tim came <coughs> to Washington and we were talking and, and he said yeah I was part of the natural helpers program in Brandon and I was like well great do you want to help me with this and he said sure do <coughs> and he ended up taking over the program from me and did a lot of good things over the years um, but all right I think I got off track of your question no just how you know how uh, and you spoke about Tim we had we had him on here and and um, you could just you know hear his love for Washington but also the battle that he was going yeah. through and um, you know, he spoke a little bit about how we as Washington, um, you know, his his department members, but also just community members supported him through ups and downs and, and disappointments and um, how we were supporting him currently while he was battling in the winter and in the fall. And, you know, how was the same for you when, when you were going through some of your, your darkest times of treatment or darkest times of trying to get through another, um, you know, checkpoint? How did Washington and its community make you feel supported? Yeah, it's just the little things that people all of a sudden coming out of the woodwork to check on you and to you know stop by and say how you're doing and and offering whatever they could give and uh, you know the the compassion that people showed. Um, you know, I mentioned Nate who had been through it a year almost a year exactly previous to me and he was always there and talking about things and um, but you know guys like Chad Statham whose father had I believe died from cancer that was always you know it, it kind of brings out a lot of 
things in other people that, you know, Allie and Jamie in the social studies department are about as kind and sweet of people as you could ever ask for. And, uh, but everybody was, and it was, you know, wanting to know what they can do. And, and I, I'm just very grateful that I was surrounded by a, a great bunch of people like yeah. that. Yeah, for sure. And we're, we're obviously grateful that you're here too. And now you can, you know, like you just said, you can be a support to somebody that may go through it in the future because you, you know, you have that exact experience to uh, maybe not, like you said, there's three billion different kinds of cancer, <laughs> it seems like. But, um, you know, you can have that story and those experiences to share of, you know, going through it in a similar way. So, okay, we better get to our draft. Because I know we have to teach here after a little while, and you, Ooh, yeah. I, you're way on the other side of the building, so we want to make sure you have plenty of time. But um, before we start, our draft today is going to be our top five MLB ballparks to watch a game. And you shared a while back that you're, uh, you love going to minor league games, any games, any ballpark to go into. Um, where, where does that fuel and passion for, for ballparks and for traveling? And, and did you, am I thinking wrongly that you just went on a, what was the journey you went on last summer or whenever? Not last summer. Yeah, two was, nothing going on last summer. There was no journey last summer. A couple, yeah. couple years ago where you hit a certain amount of ballparks in a certain amount of time. Uh, I've never really done one of those lots of ballpark kind of trips, but uh, high school, college buddies. We started this thing after we all graduated from college, and uh, people went in different directions to Illinois and to Maine and to Iowa. And, as a way to keep connected, we would do a boys' baseball weekend every summer, and we'd pick out some place. And the goal was different place every summer uh, until we got all the stadiums. And um, it didn't quite work out that way because people got busy, and uh, so we would choose convenient ballparks at convenient times, and you know, pick out a weekend and then see who's playing where. Um, but that's kind of how the baseball, well, the baseball thing started with, you know, again, family. You know, we would sometimes take vacations to other places, but we'd always fit a weekend to go up to the Twins games. Uh, so that's where it, that kind of started. But, um, but yeah, I, I love baseball, but I also just love the stadiums uh, and, the, and seeing the different cities. And I'm sifting through my list right now because honestly, you know, if I'm being upfront and honest, I'm not so well versed in, you know, I maybe have three, four that I'm pretty familiar with. Obviously, um, like you just said, Twins Target Field, but um, I'm going to have to, I want to try to get a couple good ones at four and five. So with the way our draft works, obviously you're going to go first. We'll just go back and forth. We'll get to our top five ballparks to watch a game. Which one are you starting with, Steve? Well, I thought about this since you told me this was the draft yesterday and I and I'm first of all I'm going to say that I'm going to judge these not just by the stadium themselves but but by the community okay yeah um, and one of the things that one of the things that uh, I think really makes for a good atmosphere is a is a downtown stadium uh, where we can you can park the car for the weekend and then just wander um, and so if I'm going to go number one, I'm going to go kind of a little probably surprising. I'm going to go with Cleveland. 
uh, Jacobs Field was one of those new retro kind of parks. I've never been to Camden Yards in Baltimore, but that was kind of the first uh, first place to kind of go to the old-fashioned stadium. Uh, but Cleveland is downtown uh, along the Cuyahoga River, and uh, a lot of good places to go before and after. And the stadium is great. The sight lines are great. Um, and uh, it was just probably my of the trips that I made. That's probably my favorite favorite place to go. Nice. Okay. Number one pick. All right. So my number one is uh, going to be Fenway Park. Uh, I've always thought that that just looks like a really unique and cool place to watch a ball game, especially if they're playing the Yankees. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to go experience the the green monster and it just looks so it honestly looks so small like it, i mean it's still one of those parks where the the seats are so close to the foul lines and um you know it just seems like there's just a different community atmosphere to a ball game at fenway park that you either you're with us or you're against us and that's um taken to a whole new level level at fenway so that'd be my number one okay yeah i've been to one time at fenway okay and that was certainly on my list Where'd you sit at? Uh, wow. Uh, if you if you watch games at Fenway, they talk about the Penske pole, and that's the right field foul line where I think it was Johnny Penske that hit a great game-winning home run in the playoffs or something that just went inside the pole. I was two seats to the left of the Penske pole cool. right on the field. Cool. But, yeah, I'm going to make this too long, <laughs> but... Uh, my best friend growing up, college roommate, Matt Mullen, was getting married in in Maine, where he had taken a job at the University of Maine. And, and I discovered I could save $20 in, in a f airfare if I spent the night in Boston. And the Red Sox were in town, so of course I... That's perfect. Who did they play? They played the Indians. Cool. They played the Indians, yeah. That's awesome. All right, who are you going with number, or what, where are you going number two? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with St. Louis, Bush Stadium. Again, and as far as baseball towns, St. Louis is far and away the best baseball town ever. They're really into baseball. And everything downtown, everything near Bush Stadium, they're all – they're all Cardinals. They're all the time, and, and it's just a great atmosphere. I didn't realize it says Bush Stadium was opened in 2006. I thought it was older than that. Well, there was a Bush Stadium right next door. Okay, um, yeah. And it was one of those cookie-cutter circular things, but they remodeled it and made it more of a baseball park. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in 2006, they built the new Bush Stadium Okay. right next door. Okay. All right, my number two pick is going to be Wrigley Field. Um, for obvious reasons, the historical aspect of Wrigley. And um, I've always been, so I, I know about as much about Wrigley as I grew up watching Rookie of the Year, a terrible <laughs> baseball movie with, with, it was, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, it was, it was one of the hit baseball movies for my age kids. And, um, you know, I just never really understood the, it didn't look like a, tremendously, you know, state-of-the-art stadium or anything, but then you really go back and you 
you learn the history and you, you hear some of the stories and whatnot that went there. I would like to experience, you know, Wrigley. I think that'd just be a really cool, cool experience. Yeah, so. that, it is. Second oldest ballpark in the majors. That's, it is. Uh, I remember getting out, of, getting out of the car, having to walk about 12 blocks to, to Wrigley. And as soon as I got out of the car, you could just kind of feel the atmosphere yeah. and the, the neighborhood around it, Wrigley Villas. Is it is it kind of just in a like in a residential it's neighborhood? It's pretty pretty type residential. Yeah. Until you get to right around the stadium, there's bars and shops and okay. restaurants. But cool. But yeah, it's real residential. Number three. Number three. I was going to leave for you, but I'm going to go Target Field. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, I was wondering how long that'd stay on the board. <laughs> um, they just did a great job with that with that stadium. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned how small Fenway seems, but uh, they say that Target Field is actually actually has the smallest footprint of any major league stadium. That really? They, that they stuck it in this spot, um, you know, that was empty, and they they made it work. It's um, you know, it's a it's a great little place to wander around and mm -hmm. and uh, you know it's so nice when you can run back to get a hot dog or a soda or uh and stand in the concession stand and look between the and still see the game yep and so many places if you're you know leave your seat you're you're kind of out of luck but you can I love the fact that you can get up and you can just for nine innings you can just wander and yeah. watch the watch the game from seven eight different locations. Yeah, that's one of the things I have to do at every stadium is is make a lap yep. to, to see what everything's about. All right, my number third pick. I'm going to go with Yankee Stadium, but I don't know that I'm going to go to like the third Yankee Stadium built in '09. I'd like to go older than that, maybe like the, you know, I remember growing up watching like the you know, early 2000 like Derek Jeter teams and that Yankee Stadium. I, I think. I'd want to go to an older Yankee Stadium, put it that way, with yeah. some some older teams and older, you know, dedicated fans. Haven't been haven't been to the new one, but went to the went to the previous one. I think this is the third one. This I'm is the third sure, one. But, yep. But the second one I've been to, the house that Ruth built. Yeah, that's the one I would want to go to. Uh, the cool. memorials in the outfield were pretty cool. Yep. Uh, saw them play the Red Sox. Oh, Man, doesn't get any better than that. Uh, there's a lot of fights in the stands. <laughs> so, you didn't get in any of them, did no, you? Okay. No. No. Okay. All right, number four pick. Um, uh, I am gonna go with Coors Field in Denver. Oh, that's the one I was looking at. I've been there once. That was a that was a great experience. Yeah, it's it's a neat place. Um, God, they had a Parmesan garlic pretzel that I've never seen anywhere else. Just dipped in butter, and oh man, that was that was good eating. Plus the the Lodo district down in Denver is is a whole lot of fun before games and after uh, games maybe a little bit too. I just thought it was a, a such a well kept tick, a well um, kept field. It, se it just seemed clean. It seemed like just a very nice nice place. And we were I was there for uh, uh, it was kind of our I was there for my buddy's wedding, so we went there and we were in a box seat and whatnot. And so I didn't get to necessarily wander out and experience, but it was a really nice nice field. Uh, my fourth pick is going to be, I'm going to go uh, make Mr. Bohr happy here, 19-Minute uh, Maid Park, uh, Houston Astros. Um, I'm literally just taking this for him. I just, I just want to give him a shout-out on the podcast. They've got the, you know, retractable roof, so, you know, that means on a nice day you can take a lap in a, in a nice 
uh, sunny atmosphere and watch the Astros play. So um, that'd be my fourth pick. Yeah. Never been there, but it looks like a pretty cool place. Yeah. All right, last pick for Can both of us. Number five, I got three that I'm thinking about, but I'm going to go sentimental, and I'm going to go the old Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington. Mm. Uh, those cool. were my first experiences, and it was it's not a downtown place, but um, it's just my first memories of the twins and growing up and childhood and, and even after childhood, I remember going up there a couple times as a college kid. And, uh, Memories just come back, yeah. flood in. And one of the nice things is, you know, some stadiums today, the I don't know, the security or whatever, you, you get to your seat and that's where you sit. And the old Matt, you could wander around and sit here for a couple of innings and sit there for a couple of innings. And I remember once laying down in the right foot, they had these wooden slab bleachers in right field and I remember stretching out and laying down and watching the game. That's cool. Um, but yeah, Some was, cool memories there. It was pretty neat. Yeah. Well, I'm going to round it out with um, with Miller Park. Okay. Um, I've heard I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go watch the Brewers play necessarily. Um, I hope they're playing somebody good, but I've just heard of just how state of the art and just how nice and beautiful it is. Um, I think that'd be a cool place to go watch a ball game and, you know, like we said, go watch from, you know, different locations. I mean, it, it basically saved baseball in Milwaukee yeah. building that new ballpark. So yeah. have you ever been there? Yes, and it's, I, I agree. And I was a little apprehensive about the whole uh, roof kind of thing after being tormented by the Metrodome. Yeah. But... Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a good atmosphere, pretty good stadium. If you go there, stay downtown though. Yeah. Uh-huh. Take take a cab. Uh, the kind of the there's a river that runs through downtown. That a lot of good places to. And and hope the Brewers are playing somebody somebody yeah. decent too yeah, to the, watch. Yeah, so. Twins weekend. Twins are always there once a year. Oh. Huh? But it'd be harder to get a ticket. Yeah. We can maybe make it work. Yeah. Well, Steve, thanks so much. This has been a, a joy for me. I've gotten to know you better, but also our listeners will get to know uh, a great warrior who has done so much for our building and also is going to, you know, I'm sure you're going to continue to come back and, and it'll be like you never left. But, uh, um, you know, as we go through these last 13-ish, 12 days, whatever it is of the school year, um, uh, hope that you just soak it in. Thank you so much for everything that you've brought to, to our building and to our community and, and to our students more than anything else. So, And especially thanks for t- coming on the podcast and, and taking the time to, to do so. It's been a joy having you on. Okay. Well, thank you, Jeff, for having me. I'm honored to be here. And I also am very grateful that I hear you're going to be with the school for a while. And you've been doing great things. And I'm looking forward to, to following you in the future. I appreciate that. All right. Take care. Thank you.